0: I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the Webby-nominated podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. This episode has been sponsored by Lauren Gabrielson, which is a women's wear brand that creates elevated essentials for the modern women's wardrobe. The collection is entirely designed and produced in Brooklyn, New York. The Lauren Gabrielson woman values quality, versatile pieces that she can wear every day that are customized to her body, her time, and her style. And by the way, I have two Lauren Gabrielson headbands, which I wear all the time, and you can see in my photos on my events page because I wear them everywhere, and they're amazing, and actually my Six year old daughter steals mine all the time. So, anyway, laurengabrielson.com. I'm so excited to be here today with Lisa Heffernan and Mary Dell Harrington, who are the co authors of Grown and Flown How to Support Your Teen, Stay Close as a Family, and Raise Independent Adults. They are the co creators of Grown and Flown, the number one community site for parents with teens and college students, reaching millions of parents every month. Mary Dell previously worked in TV and media, while Lisa had a career on Wall Street and in politics and writing. Lisa is a New York Times bestselling author of three books, including Goldman Sachs' The Culture of Success. They live with their husbands and families in the New York City area. So welcome to Lisa and Mary Dell. Thanks so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thank you for having us. We really appreciate it. Not only did I really enjoy your book, but I have to say I don't usually follow Facebook groups. And the Grown and Flown Facebook group is, like, the only one that I read all the time and get, like, emotional about and I'm attached to. So I don't know. <laughs> Just wanted to throw that out there. So I feel like I already had this, like,
1: natural sort of gratitude towards you for creating that sort of space for everybody. It's been a big surprise. I think a lot of parents have a lot of questions, and they don't know people in their real life to ask those questions. And the group is functioning in a way that fills a role that isn't in their real life. Many times, I'm sure you see this— People are asking questions, and I think they don't know anyone in their real life who has that situation. But the group's got about maybe 125,000 parents a in it. A few more. A few yeah. more. And when you go into a group that large, other people will have had whatever experience you're having and really bring their insight and experience to your to your problem or your question. I feel
0: like I tell everybody who now has a child at that age, I'm like, are you part of this group? Do you know about it? So Thank you. Thank you. Well, we have had people tell us on more than one occasion
2: that the group is larger the town that they live in and much more diverse.
0: Mm, interesting. So it
2: gives people an opportunity to really have some creative parenting ideas that they may not have in their own social circle or their own school circle.
0: And for people who aren't on them, and I shouldn't have probably jumped into all this, but Grown and Flown is intended for people whose kids are teens or aging out or just flying the nest in some form or another. And you can just join on Facebook, Grown sure. and Flown. Yes. Exactly. We
2: vet everybody to make sure that they are indeed a parent of a high school or a college student because... We really want the conversation to be around those topics. So we're careful. I
0: snuck in. I <laughs> think
2: well. You're, you're,
0: you're, you're close, you know, but with I your think some, oldest. I think there's some things, like I'm divorced and remarried, and I think there's things with the kids on weekends when I don't have them that it's the same type of feeling of parents who have kids who leave, that people maybe my age or have kids my age don't necessarily feel as much as people in the group. Yeah, it could be. That's a good point. So Anyway, maybe an offshoot. Maybe you make an exception for...
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we, we're we broad-minded about it, and we also realize that some people whose oldest are in ninth grade have much younger children. Right. Likewise, people who whose youngest is going off to college have kids who are possibly married, and they may already be grandparents.
0: So it's it's somewhat flexible. So let's back up now that I've jumped all the way in here. Tell listeners about what Grown and Flown, the book, is about and what inspired you to write it. And then I, I want to hear about sort of the inception of the whole package. The whole package. The whole whole (laughs) Grown and (laughs) Flown.
1: So we wrote Grown and Flown, how to support your teens, stay close as a family, and raise independent adults. And that's a mouthful. For the same reason that we started the whole package, which is these are some of the most challenging, some of the most exciting, some of the most heartbreaking and certainly some of the most consequential years of parenting. These are when kids are setting the direction for their lives. We still play a pretty big role in some of that decision-making, if nothing else, just being a sounding board for our kids. And there was so little out there. There are so many amazing websites and amazing books for parents of little kids. And You know, the expression, little kids, little problems, big kids, big problems. The big problems weren't, we thought, weren't being addressed adequately. So we thought we would start a website. Essentially, that's where we started. At the beginning, it was the two of us talking about, I have three kids. This is Lisa. Mary Dale has two. It was kind of us talking about our five kids. And now we have over 500 writers on the website. Many of them are writing from the position of their professional expertise, they may also be parents of teens, but they're really writing from the fact that they're a psychologist, or they're a physician, or a teacher. So we gathered a lot of this expertise, and we put it in a book with some of the best parent writers we know.
2: Wow. And you know, we know from research, parents of teens feel the most insecure in their roles. I mean, this is when parents have the least amount of confidence when they have middle schoolers, and it really doesn't start to pick up until the kids are grown. So there's this vacuum of information. And at the same time, as Lisa said, families are dealing with some of the most complex questions as teens gain more independence and grapple with the direction of their life. So simultaneously, you're no longer going into the pediatrician with your your child. You're not having parent-teacher conferences in the same way that you do when your kids are little. And you're really not supposed to be the ones talking to the teacher on behalf of your student or the coach on behalf of your student. So all of a sudden, you know, the scaffolding in your life kind of melts away. And once, you, I know we're in New York City, so it may not be as relevant as p- parents in the suburbs, but once their kids start driving, they really are out of the loop. So it can be a kind of a lonely and stressful time. So we hope that we could add a little bit to that conversation. I thought of my kids driving. It keeps me up at night. <laughs> <Is> <laughs> oh, don't, my God. Yeah, don't think about on it. On behalf it of is, everybody is, on the roads. It is scary. <laughs>
0: There was a part in the book where you talk about overparenting, And I thought that was interesting for you to address because writing a book about this age group, some might say, you know, there's been all this pushback against being too involved with your kids and this whole scandal for college admissions and everything. You know, some people obviously still call to wake them up for class. And, you know, they say, we got a 90 in biology versus I did well. And yet at the same time, you say in the book, helicopter parenting has crashed. So has it really crashed? And how do you get people off of the
1: helicopters? So a couple of thoughts here. One is we don't think that helicopter parenting was ever as popular as the press would have you believe. It makes a great story. It makes a great headline. I mean, but there isn't actually almost any data how common it is. Parents who are truly overparenting. parents who are truly intrusive in their kids' lives. So what's happened is parents and kids— teenagers and young adults, are much closer than they were a generation ago. We are much closer to our children than our parents were to us in terms of the amount of communication we have, in terms of what they want to talk to us about, the important things in their lives, their jobs, their aspirations, their romantic life. And maybe we conflated a little of that closeness with helicopter parenting. So first of all, there are some helicopter parents, and the argument to make to them is really that you're damaging your kid. And that's that's what the professional said. The, the biggest thing that will get you pulled back, helicopter parents have the best of intentions. And if they know how much their behavior damages their kids and keeps them from reaching independence, that's the best argument against it. But most parents have grown concerned that they're a helicopter parent, and they're really not. They're just really close to their kid. So we talk in the book about a couple of things that maybe help parents. One is a rule of thumb, which is, If you would do something for somebody else's kid, you should do it for your own kid. So if your kid were writing a college application or if your kid were writing, wanting to know about a career, I would proofread your kid's letter. I would look at their letter. I would look at their resume. I would make suggestions to them. I would take them to work with me for the day to show them what it was like. If I would do that for your kid, I should do it for my kid. So you're by and large not overstepping when you're doing something that you would do for a niece or a nephew or a friend's kid. The other thing is what we're trying to do over these years is we're trying to go from the role of parent, the sort of all-powerful parent, to the role of mentor. And if you feel yourself moving towards that, if you feel that they're taking more and more control and you're moving more and more into that consultative role, you're probably doing it right. Yeah,
2: I think every—and what what I was going to add when Lisa was talking about the— tendency now of parents to be much closer to their kids. That is the case in our two families. We notice that there's research that bears that out that we draw from. And one thing that we've tried to do throughout the book is to look at the best research we can find around things. And when you were talking about there not being any research to really substantiate the quantity of helicopter parenting out there, it's really... It may be a kind of an anecdotal thing.
1: Yeah, and the research actually shows that it's both the new closeness between teenagers and young adults and their parents is both beneficial for the parents and for the kids. We are helping our kids by staying close to them. It's kind of the best thing in life. One of the things that you see written about a lot is if your kid can do it themselves, you shouldn't do it for them. And this one I think we disagree with and we talk about in the book My husband can do a lot of things I do for him. That's how you show people that you love them. That's what families do for each other. He can pick up his own dry cleaning, but, you know, sometimes I do that for him. So I think the same is true with our kids. If you make them their lunch and they're in high school, of course they can make their lunch. But then you let them sleep that extra 10 minutes. That's just showing families how you love each other. That isn't saying, I don't think you can make your lunch. It's saying, I can see how stressed you are and how tired you are. And this is this little bit of love I can show you by making you food and getting you out the door quicker. So we don't find that as a good criteria for uh, helicopter parenting.
2: And I think this comes into play in a very pronounced way during the college admissions season. Because so many people will say, it's my kid's deal, they can own it. It is a terrifying thing to think about doing college admissions on your own, especially if you're a 17-year-old, when you don't really have perhaps the best organization structure of course they don't. We, we struggle to have a good organizational system. But if we can help them by, you know, looking at an essay or helping them plan out a college trip that involves flying and visiting and renting a car and things that can be very complicated, I don't think we're over for them. I think we're actually giving them, as Lisa said, the sort of love and
0: support that we would want a family member to help us with. And as you point out in the book, the argument that you know, nobody did this for us and we turned out just fine is not really relevant. And also, you point out, which I found very interesting, were we? Like, were we just fine? Could we have maybe been better?
1: I mean, maybe this is even more beneficial. Yeah, there's a lot of data that suggests we were actually the worst bent generation. (laughs) We were the worst behaved generation in history. Great. Um, Yeah, no, I'm not sure that we're the model we want to use. So what we're finding with millennials and already with Gen Z, who are now in college, they are drinking less. They are binge drinking less. They have fewer sexual partners. They are more responsible about using birth control. And when you put those two things together, there's a lot less unwanted pregnancy. Their drug use is by and large down, though marijuana use is about the same. They are a more open-minded and accepting generation, and they are getting educated in greater numbers than we did. So the notion that we were just fine is perhaps a faulty one. Yes, we got to adulthood. Yes, we're functioning adults. But to set an 18-year-old off on their own and say, you know, you got this, the way we did. We'd call our parents once a week on the phone. When we had a problem, we would consult other 18-year-olds who knew no more than we did. Our kids now tend to turn to us. So if they have a romantic problem, they're as likely to talk to their parents now as they were to talk to a friend. Their parents have a lot more experience than they had and can be kind of a, a steadier force in their lives. So the notion that everything was fine and we should raise them the way we were raised, I think is pretty
0: faulty. And you put really great tips in the book on how to help your kids through heartbreak, which I thought was so sweet, too. I mean, you don't think about it. At least, I, you know, I... I just don't think about how am I gonna handle that. I feel like I'll just handle it, I guess. But you have like a, a roadmap and that's really helpful. And even just to anticipate it all coming, obviously you can think, guess this will happen, but there it all is laid out nicely and <laughs> with steps to follow, so that's awesome. It's,
2: it's true. I mean it it will it is an inevitable thing. It's something we actually want for our kids. We want them to have relationships that perhaps aren't optimal for them that they can learn from, you know, but we want to let them know that we're sorry that we see them so hurt. We want to tell them that we've been in their spot and know that this is excruciating. We can offer to do something for them, you know, go on a walk, have a little retail therapy. That's always a good one for (laughs) me and my daughter. Send them a care package if they're at college or offer to come and get them, bring them home for the weekend. You know, that could be something that could be really beneficial. Obviously, tell them you love them. And then later, after the pain has subsided and you think you can have this conversation with your teen or young adult, talk about maybe what takeaway they have from it. You know, is there something about that partner that just wasn't optimal? Is it something that they realize when they think about a future spouse or a future partner or a romantic relationship, something that's going to be important that they, that they possess
0: so they don't make the same mistake? I feel like this is an offshoot of the advice for parents of younger kids, too, where it's like, let them feel their feelings. Right. Like, the feelings themselves aren't wrong. You just have to right.
1: let you know help them through, but not try to squash it. Yeah. And well, sometimes the best thing we do is just be, you know, Lisa DeMoore talks about this, is dumping their emotional trash on us. Sometimes mm-hmm, the single mm-hmm. best thing we do is just let them unload on us. And not doing that to a friend and not doing that to a roommate or something, doing it to us because we're able to handle that well. And sometimes they feel better just for having done that. Sometimes they don't really need more than that. So in your house, you don't scream, don't take it out on me. <laughs> nope.
2: I try we, not to. We may think it in our heads, but the, we, it is very nice if they then let us know after the fact that the crisis is abated, that they're fine. You know, a lot of times they will give us that emotional trash and then they'll never call back and say, mom, you know what? I'm fine now. Don't worry. Because we do continue to worry about
0: them if we don't get that all clear sign later on. But then how do you protect yourself from just being a punching bag of your child? Hmm. Oh, that's a hard one. I think hopefully
2: we've had our own enough personal life experiences to realize that that relationship in college that 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 didn't happen, that didn't turn out the right the way they had hoped, or that position that they didn't get, or that you know grade that they didn't get is a is sort of a blip. We have the perspective on whether or not that's a big issue in their lives or likely to be likely to be something that they learn from and move on from.
1: And when they're young teens, they still have, you know, they're going to have a lot of disappointments. They're going to try out for teams they're not going to get onto. And it's heartbreaking. They're going to try out for the play that they don't get into or get excluded. One of the worst things we hear in the group all the time is being shut out of a friend group. And just, you just want to cry for the 14-year-old, 15-year-old girl who's being rejected by her former friends. It's, It's excruciating to listen to even when you don't know the child. Mm, yeah. But what we possess that their friends don't possess is the ability to step back and say, this is just one step on life. There will be more friends. There will be more friend groups. There will be, we know that as adults. So we have to be that punching bag sometimes.
0: I feel, though, that when I got that kind of advice when I was going through something, it didn't always help in the moment, right? Like... If my mother, you know, this is this is just a blip. Like yeah, there will be other right. friends I'm like, but this friend is like the center of my universe.
1: Right. You know, because right. no, I I'm, su- ag- I'm suggesting that we know that, not that you say that to them. Oh, okay. I think you they'll just... find that condescending okay, okay. in the moment. Okay, no, I'm saying you. <laughs> when you're saying how do you handle being right. the punching yes, back, yeah. okay. you step Perfect. back and think that, yeah. No, <laughs> at the time that that will be rejected and that will get you really ugly faces.
0: <laughs> <laughs> in addition to all the tips you have on so many things, you also have like the handbook on dropping your kid at college in the middle of this book. You have expert advice. It does a lot of different amazing things for your target audience. You have tips on dropping kids at school, from what to pack to what to say. What are some of the
1: most important things? The most important thing to remember is this is a really, really important moment in life. We have a professor of many years, he's a Professor Emery, who wrote a piece, and it's in the book, about how this is one of the big days. This is like weddings and bar mitzvahs. These are days we remember. Many of us can remember being dropped by our own parents. So his point is don't tell them not to mix darks and whites. Don't tell them to change their sheets every two weeks. The last thing you want them to remember about you walking away isn't don't forget to, you know, Wake up on time for class. Yeah. Brush your teeth. Yeah. Your teeth. Like there's something plenty of time to trending. nag. There's texts. You can nag tomorrow. Try and say the most meaningful things. Whether it's conveying your love to them at that moment, whether it's telling them something big about your life or your family, whether it's just like reasserting the confidence that you have in them or the pride that you have in them that they got to this moment. They're going to college. This is. They didn't get there by doing nothing. They they worked pretty hard, so. On that day, try and think of something of consequence to say as opposed to either standing there sobbing, and I'm going to put my hand up on that one. or pretty common behavior, actually. Or saying something trivial that really doesn't capture the moment. The
2: most important thing to do is actually the week or two weeks before you make that trip to the freshman dorm, sit down and write a letter where you can really get your thoughts together, as you know, it's much (laughs) easier to come up with something more profound. If you have a little bit of time and you have, you know, your computer in front of you where you can edit and come up with just the right words, leave that for them so that they have that to open after you've gone. It can be a real meaningful thing for both
0: of you. I'm like getting emotional just thinking about this. As I told you, my son is leaving for boarding school and I read your book and I've been thinking in the back of my head, oh, I should really be doing that letter. And I'm like, what do I want to say? And then I don't want to write anything that's going to make him more upset. Because he says sometimes when he sees a picture or something, it it brings it all up if they're distracted. But anyway, it's been in the back of my head. (laughs) And of course, I would love to have that myself, right? I'm sure we all would. Like to have something, a keepsake like that yeah, from our yeah.
1: own parents. You yeah. know, I texted my kids a lot of those things. And, of course, those are gone to the memory of man because they were text. So that was foolish, right? That's the reason to write the letters is our digital communication just disappears.
2: I think to mitigate that sadness and that highly emotional moment, Mm -hmm. because it's emotional for them as well as for us. Even if they do their best job of looking tough and wanting to be done with you, they're in many cases leaving every single person they know in life, their dogs, their families, their friends, their high school experiences, their experience of being a senior in high school or, you know, being sort of at the top of the social heap, moving into something that's much less certain as to what they're going to do. But I think knowing that you're going to see them and having a date in mind where we will be there for game day, we will be there for Parents Weekend, we will see you at Thanksgiving, gives you all kind of an opportunity to say, okay, Mm
0: -hmm. we know we're going to be together. Then we can kind of get to that point. So I've been seeing on Instagram a lot of friends I have with older kids who are, you know, bereft having dropped off kids. And it's the season still where people are kind of getting over that and transitioning to new formats. What do you have to say? Like, what advice would you give to those parents who are readjusting to life with a, a child gone?
2: It's very different, obviously. when you And when you come back home and you see that empty bedroom, you know, it is a moment where you're thinking, how am I going to do this? But Like I just said before, knowing that you're going to get together again is actually a huge— it was a very big thing for us. Our son played football, so we thought we we would actually be seeing him the following weekend. So (laughs) it wasn't really such a painful thing. Our daughter went to school a seven-hour drive away, and we weren't going to see her until parents' weekend, which was six weeks away. But having that moment where I could focus on the positive in our future was actually beneficial to me.
1: Yeah, the other thing is— Don't beat yourself up. If you're feeling really sad, if you're finding it hard to walk into their bedroom, don't tell yourself, this is a good thing, what's wrong with me, there's nothing wrong with you. This is one of the people that you love most in this world and they're not here, so why wouldn't you feel sad? I think we chastise ourselves a little and feel like somehow there's something weak or something wrong that we're feeling so sad and we should actually let ourselves experience that. We find most parents feel better after a couple of weeks Distract yourself with your other kids, distract yourself with your spouse, distract yourself with your girlfriends, whatever helps you move on. People talk about hobbies. I don't find that necessarily a hobby replaces a person, but friendships and companionships and partners, they certainly can fill some of that void.
2: Certainly, joining the our Facebook group where <laughs> you can commiserate with 125,000 people, many of whom are feeling exactly like you are. It does make you feel a little bit better to read something where someone expresses exactly how you're feeling. It's like, okay, I'm not the only one. Okay, that makes that does make me feel yeah. better. So, finding community. Whatever that translates
1: into you, into your world, is really important. One of the things we've seen parents do that looks like so much fun, I wish I had done it, actually, is they have care package parties after the kids have left. So everybody gets together with a bunch of the parents that you were seeing your moms together with. Everybody brings ten of one item, let's say, and then they put packages together for the kids. So one, you know, everybody puts one item in each box and write notes to the kids about, you know, you got this, this is going to be great, I'm so excited for you, and share a glass of wine. And yeah, I was going to say, wine is usually part, yeah. of, the, part of the equation. <laughs> or coffee if it's morning. And then commiserate and remember that everyone else is feeling exactly the same way. Someone just put pictures up last night yeah. of, doing, of having done That's one. Looks like coffee. a lot of fun. Yeah. They could combine that with
0: a book party exactly. like for your book. Yes. You know, they could all <laughs> yes. read little snippets, and it that was a perfect. great idea. <laughs> so when I was getting used to my kids being away every other weekend, I had this big debate: Do I keep their doors open or closed when they weren't home? What do you think? Doors open or closed with the children who have left or, or away?
2: You know, and I'd go for the door open, only because I feel like it seems like it's so so much of a void if it's shut. At least if there's light there and you know it's it feels really good to go back home and invariably they have left coat hangers bags of trash stuff they decided not to take at the last minute and it feels really good to go in strip the bed clean everything up get it all nice and neat because one thing that doesn't generally exist with a teenager is a tidy bedroom mm. so mm-hmm. if you can if you can create a tidy space in there there's this little tiny bit of gratification
1: that comes with that so i go for the open door I closed the door because I couldn't even look. So, <laughs> so I think you could do it either way. I did not handle my children leaving well. It was really painful, and I literally couldn't look in their bedrooms for a while. So
2: there you go. So take your chores. Exactly.
0: <laughs> Tell me a little more about the process of writing this book. How did you two—I know you two collaborated, obviously, on the Facebook group. But in terms of writing this book, how, like, how did you actually do it, and how did you— Yeah, how did you collaborate? How did you find doing it? I know you've written on your own and with other people and with Mary Dale. Tell me about the whole... It was
1: really fun doing this because we, over the years, had, as I said, published about 500 different writers. So we had amazing people to go to and ask for pieces for the book. Experts, professors, you know, teachers, high school teachers, doctors, psychiatrists, psychologists, there's all sorts of people in the book. So first we did, we just thought of all the people we thought were best and could write the best pieces for us and kind of outline the book that way. The book is not really chronological, it's topical. So it's about love and family and there's, you know, a section about health and mental health and health happiness and so it's not it doesn't really walk you through per se from let's say from ninth grade through college and then we started just you know drafting and marydell would read a draft and she would tell me what was wrong with it so that was really helpful Mm -hmm. the problem with writing a book on your own is you can actually go down a rabbit hole of something that's not very relevant something that you feel really good about that isn't actually very good so it's really really fantastic to collaborate and that was really fun
2: well Lisa and I also started our website yeah. almost eight years ago. Yeah. So we have had how many blog like 2,000, two thousand twenty five hundred yeah. blog posts that we have either written or in most cases now read. And edited and worked on together. Yeah. So we have a well-grooved sort of system of collaborating. We divide and conquer yep. in what we do with Grown and Flown, but then we work together in a collaborative way. So we sort of have figured it out long before the book project came about.
0: Are there tips to working with friends or tips in general of how to balance the sort of work-wife
1: relationship that you yeah do you need to have? check your ego at the door like Marielle is the easiest person you have ever worked with in your life because she's able to bring her mind to it without you know letting letting a person's ego get in the way that's the hardest thing to work with when when people find it hard to have their words cut when somebody reads something you've written and says it's not clear or there are too many words that comes from a good place and as a writer you just it's hard sometimes to hear that I will be honest, but you have to remember that that comes from a really good place, and that is help. This is not criticism, this is help. And so working with somebody, if you can just keep reminding yourself this is not criticism, this is help, it's really, really useful.
2: I think Lisa and I also had a working relationship as school volunteers together before we started Grown and Flown. So every other Tuesday, we worked at the, our kids' school snack bar we would talk the entire time, We'd drink coffee, <laughs> we would turn around when we had a long line of kids who were waiting on us to finish our story so that we could give them their Snapple and their bagel. And so we developed a working relationship that really, I think, was the foundation for launching it. We knew that we enjoyed spending time together and that was huge. I don't think you would just pick somebody out of the yep. blue that you'd never really worked with to be your writing partner or your, you know, your business partner. I think the other real key thing for us is that we have very patient husbands, so <laughs> they know that we spend a lot of time together building this business and working on the book and working on all the other grown and flown projects that we've got going on, and they're really wonderful and supportive. So that's been that's been huge. That's always a
0: good thing. That's always <laughs> <a> <laughs> good helps everything. Did you consider other formats for the book? I thought maybe this would be an anthology of essays about. Similar to, like, the posts and the group, did you think about an anthology, or did you think about it? Was this the go-to format from the
1: beginning? This is what the publisher wanted. Yeah, so it it was, yeah. They wanted a book that very much mirrored the site. Did they come to you? Yes, they did, actually. Nice. (laughs) Which is, which I, this is my fourth book, and so I know that that's not (laughs) at all typical. I've gone through the process of, you know, the proposals and hoping that someone will, will pick up your proposal. So it very much mirrors the site. And we're hoping that it's, we Pick pieces that we think people will read and reread. We, we hope it's more of a handbook in some ways. Mm-hmm. We were going for, you know, with the what to expect, what you're expecting kind of thing where you, you dip into it and then set it down and then dip into it again. Because kids don't go through the milestones the way we do in pregnancy and early childhood. They go through things at very, very different times. So we're hoping that the book is useful over a very long period of time for parents.
2: And certainly the chapters on mental health and happiness are really relevant for middle school kid as well as a young adult. There are elements there that are applicable.
0: Do you have plans for more books or more
1: extensions <laughs> of this brand in any way? Well, the site keeps growing and the community keeps growing. It's grown much faster and larger than we expected. So, we don't have concrete plans, but yeah, I mean, we're going to we're going to continue to expand it. There isn't a lot as we start where we started the conversation, there just isn't a lot for parents in this age group, and we've reached a parent, like such as yourself, people who had their kids in the 21st century and have always looked for online resources for raising their kids. If you had your kids in the 90s, you might have looked for books, you might have talked to friends and your own mother more. People who had their kids in the 21st century have always sought out online resources from baby Center on. And so we're finding that those are the people who are finding us now.
2: I think the other thing, too, is, so we have the book, we have the Facebook group, but our website has a pipeline that is always full mm-hmm. of writers some of who are prolific and write for us frequently others are brand new that we that are new to us that we and we love the combination so we're publishing two or three original blog posts every single day so that's continuing on we have the book but the website is very active
0: with new writing all the time but i feel like you should like license it and do you know like college care package Kits, or you could like make it a whole thing, you know.
2: Well, we do, we have (laughs) trademarked our name. Okay. So, grown and flown is a term, common term in in England, but becoming more common here to just express this whole stage of of your children departing. But you never know. You never Never know. know. All right. Look look
0: for more grown and flown projects. Looking back, is there anything you wish you had done? said before your kids left?
2: I had a great time with college visits. My kids did not have nearly as much fun on them as I did, but it made me regret that I had not done more one-on-one trips with them. You know, sometimes life is just so busy and you want to take family trips So, you know, obviously don't want to exclude one child or the other, but to be able to go away one on one with my son in particular gave us a chance to really talk and and work together as a team. You know, he would pick out the music for that we would listen to or I would find the hotels and he would come up with things we should do, you know, while we're visiting those towns. And we just didn't have that kind of opportunity to sort of do a fun project together. Especially in high school, there's so much stress and so much like busyness and get this done and deadlines and college application thing. It just wears you out. So being able to go and
1: travel together one-on-one is really something that I wish I would have done. I have to echo Mary Dell saying that. I wish I had spent more time one-on-one with each of my kids, either traveling or just you know going out to dinner with one of them, rather than you know right. always lumping. It doesn't have to be a big trip. At all. Yeah, no, my kids are close in age, and they just were lumped together from day one, and I wish I had done that. There's two other things I think. One is I wish I had brought less of my own baggage into their adolescence. So I was so worried about them doing what I did or not doing what I didn't do that I parented. I brought really a lot of my own experience to their adolescence. They are not me. The times were different. They're different people. They're not even the same. I have boys. They're not even the same gender as I am. And I wish I had brought less of my past and let go of my past more in raising them. And I guess the last one is. I wish I had worried less and trusted us all more. I worried so much and I worried about outcomes that we would have been able to handle. My kids are good kids and my husband was there and a wonderful father, yet I worried, you know, that this wouldn't happen or that wouldn't happen, none of which are major consequential things. And I would have made all of our lives a lot easier if I had just worried a lot less. That worry thing is really hard not to do. Yeah. It just is really... I used to tell them I'm paid to worry. When they said, Mom, stop worrying, I was like, no, I'm paid to worry. But you know what? It would have made everybody's lives a lot Yes, I easier agree. without that. That's absolutely the case. Wow. Do you have any advice to aspiring authors? This is a great time to be an aspiring author. You know, over the last decade, the sort of gatekeepers that always stood between you and getting published um, have become less and less important. So I think to become an aspiring author, I think... Meet lots of people, as many people as you can. Reach out to people online. Everybody wants to help everybody. We love to publish people who've never been published before. And there are people. It's it's really exciting. And there are people whose writing careers have started by just reaching out to us and sending us something wonderful. And they've ended up on national television. And they've. It's it's been great. It's been great to see. Yeah, and they've ended up with all sorts of wonderful progression to their careers. So don't be at all shy about reaching out to people. Don't ever feel like you're imposing or you're getting in the way. People love to hear from aspiring authors. I think that would, be, that would be one of the most important things.
2: I think that's true. I think the barrier to entry is, is low to create a blog. Yeah. You know, all it, The hardest thing for us was, was to pick our name. That took us months. Yeah. But then finally, your son was going back to college, and he said, OK, it's now or when I'm home for spring break. I will help you get the domain name. I'll help you get going. But you just have to decide. But it took him very little time. So once you decide that you want to write, definitely create a blog, pick a name, get going on it, experiment, you know, push all the buttons, see what you can do and what you can learn on your own. And that's just don't be afraid of social media. Explore Instagram, Facebook, whatever works for you.
1: I would say the last thing is engage and listen to your audience. The advantage we have now over people had 10 years ago is you can get a lot of really instant feedback about whether your tone and your voice matters, whether what you're saying matters, whether it's compelling to people, and you didn't really have that opportunity for so long. Your readers will tell you a lot. Your readers will give you a lot of really, really useful and incredible guidance. If you've got a voice and you've got something that people want to say, you will be successful now. I mean, I I feel like there are so many avenues now. If you're finding that your readers are reacting positively and they want to hear from you, keep pushing because you will be successful.
0: Great. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for all this advice, for your great book, for the community you've created, and for helping so many people. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Of course. Thanks again to my sponsor, Lauren Gabrielson, the women's wear brand that creates elevated essentials for the modern women's wardrobe. LaurenGabrielson.com. Thanks for listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. You can follow me on Instagram at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You can always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com.